Hi, everybody. Welcome to my podcast, Changing the Course. I am Atara, founder of the Curly Girl Movement, author of the Curly Girly book series, and owner of curlygirly.com. And my podcast mission is to bring interesting, newsworthy, and current topics to the forefront with dynamic guests who help us change the way we see things and open our world to new ideas. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome Nancy Stearns Burkow to my show. Nancy is a published author, as well as a writer for many renowned publications, including the New York Times, the Huffington Post, US News and World Report, among many others. Nancy authored a poignant and touching book, Brain in a Jar, A Daughter's Journey Through Her Father's Memory, which details in heartbreaking detail her father's memory decline. Nancy also authored Dryland, One Woman's Swim to Sobriety, as Nancy details her own journey with alcoholism. Nancy was inducted into the Athletic Hall of Fame at the University of South Florida, where she was a 17-time All-American national champion and Olympic trial qualifier. Nancy currently works as a communications and marketing advisor to Ajam University in the United Arab Emirates. Welcome, Nancy, to my show. How are you today? I am great. Thank you for having me, and I'm so pleased to be a part of of your podcast and talking about being brave and embracing change and making change in this world. Thank you. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to meet and speak with such interesting people. You know, Nancy, I love authors. I I love to read and not just books, but, but I love like a good essay and great articles. You know, everybody has a voice and an opinion, but when you actually pen your thoughts and you share your voice with the world, you're taking a really big risk, right? You're subjecting yourself to possible criticism Mm. and analysis. And that's not always an easy thing to do once you've put yourself out there. So I really admire um, writers, journalists like yourself. So tell me, how did you start writing? How did that come about? It was the craziest thing, as all things are. All good things are crazy. So when I graduated from college and my swimming career was over, I joined the Peace Corps and went to Kenya. And I was reading the International Herald Tribune in Nairobi one day. And I saw that my arch rival in swimming had broken the American record in the 50-meter freestyle and would be representing the U.S. in Seoul in 1988. And I said to myself, I better get myself to Seoul. And I did. So I moved immediately to South Korea because I wanted to see her race. And because the world is crazy and wonderful, I I wound up getting my first writing job with the Korea Herald, which is an English language newspaper in Seoul. Okay. And I was hired to cover the swimming and diving events for for the Olympics. Wow. Something that you had was so close to your heart because that's what you had done. Wow. And for the added twist of fate, my arch rival ended up testing positive for performance enhancing drugs and didn't go. So of the two of us, I, in fact, was the only one in Seoul for the games. (laughs) Wow. That is a strange (laughs) twist of fate, right? And it has continued that way for 30 years. Wow. Well, it's never like, you know, the planning doesn't go as planned, right? So you have to go with the flow and see where life takes you. Right. And, that's and embrace true. the amb- amb- uh, ambiguity. Yes. It's amazing. And that's true. I think what's, what's interesting is, you know, you did this when you were young 30 years ago. Um, but I think that's true of life generally, almost no matter what age you are, because there's always twists and turns as long as we're living. And mm-hmm. so if you can 
you know, somehow there are people who are planners and like to go with the flow, but if you can be a little of both and then just let right. life take you where it goes, so many interesting possibilities will open up. But now you were a swimmer, right? That was like your mm -hmm. huge passion. So that's interesting. You know, I have a, a young son who's a, a tennis player. This is his passion. Like that's all he wants to do. You know, since he's nine years old, he's been playing tennis and it's cute. Wow. He's thinks he's going to Wimbledon. Let's, let's all hope he does. Um, sure. I mean, he's young, so we don't know yet, but we'll see. But I understand that drive that mm -hmm. um, it takes to get to be um, an Olympic, um, is it called like a trot? What is, what is the exact name? Like you weren't actually in the Olympics, but you were qualified right. for it? Level. Olympic level, you could Olympic say, level. world class, just a world class athlete in general. Wow. So what? So I understand that that is enormous amount of commitment, right? Mm -hmm. So right, that's something that you did as as how old were you? I started when I was four, swimming wow. in rivers in Alabama. My father taught me to swim, and he just decided that I had a talent. I'm not sure if I really had that talent, but wow. he decided that I did, and then I was. Um, really led into swimming programs. We moved to Florida and we joined uh, clubs where the best swimming coaches were. And I really enjoyed quite a bit of success um, and got a scholarship to swim in college. And it really became my identity. Right. So what happens sometimes though, the, the flip side of all of this is that when your career is done and, and back in the eighties, swimmers were really done after college, you know, there wasn't right. a, a longer shelf life for us. Right, right. So then you have to figure out what is your identity going forward. And that is a struggle that I think I, you know, I'm still grappling with, you know, it was so clear that I was a swimmer, that I was a mermaid as my father called me. Right. Who are you after that? You can take some of the aspects that made you a great swimmer, like determination and um, commitment, and apply those to other things. But, you know, my life journey really started after swimming end, ended. Um, right, right. And I became a world traveler and, unfortunately, an alcoholic. It was kind of like I spent so much time in the water, and then I came out of the water and decided to to shove liquid down my throat yeah, for 30 right. years. Right. So this commitment to all things liquid was strong and heavy. Um, and I only emerged from that five years ago, courtesy of the desert. We moved to Abu Dhabi and the landscape and the non-drinking people inspired me to, to give up alcohol. Wow. So take me back to that because I'm sure a lot of our listeners have struggled with um, drinking as a problem, even if it, it's not exactly alcoholism per se, but mm -hmm. there's just people that overdo things, right? Whether it's drugs, alcohol, food, any of that, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. all, it's, it's similarly based, correct? Correct. Um, so take me back to that. Do you, did that just start, you couldn't be drinking while you were swimming. Am I right? Um, I didn't really drink that much during the season, but swimmers are known for being hard partiers. They train hard, they party hard, but they uh -huh. do it at certain times. So when the Got season it. is over, but uh -huh. you know, you can't maintain a high level of drinking and be a great, be a great athlete. Right. Right. Um, but it, it, it just sort of comes with the territory. Uh, swimmers are tough. Yeah, so they do tend to go overboard. I mean, that's a generalization, but I think a lot of swimmers will tell you the same, the same right. thing. I wonder if that's uh, true of all competitive sports. I, I don't know. I'm just it might it might be. Um, I don't I don't know. 
but I think um, for some of us that competitive edge um, is exhausting yes. and, uh, and then you, you seek another a way to recovery or cope. Ah, yes. Yes. That makes um, so much sense, right? You need, you need to decompress and how are you, you need to decompress that? specifically with swimming though. I, my, I had my first sip of champagne. I don't know, in my early, in my tweens, I had won some big event and mm-hmm. my father and mom were having champagne. They said, you can have a sip. And I remember thinking, wow, the bubbles, in my system feel the way lactic acid or swimming feels in my system. Wow. It created that same sort of ebullience. Wow. So it was kind of scientific for me as well. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So then there you are traveling the world after swimming. Mm-hmm. Um, and then did you always think of yourself as a writer? I'm just always curious because like I said, I think everyone has a voice, but that doesn't yeah. mean everyone's going to write. True. I, I think I knew pretty early on that I was going to be a writer, even though I had a professor in college who said, you're never going to write anything, forget about it. <laughs> I think that was the best thing I learned in college was how to be defiant in the face yes. of somebody <laughs> saying that. That's where the competitive and determination came in. Right. But, you know, you, when I, right? <laughs> exactly. And when I got to Seoul and I got that writing career, you know, really handed to me because of my expertise in swimming. And there was no one else in Seoul who, you know, was around the newspaper who could write with that level of authority and authenticity. I just leveraged that for the rest of my life into writing. And um, I I always thought I was short form, but when my father got Alzheimer's disease, I started writing in earnest. I started a blog Mm -hmm. and was just writing about what was happening as a way to hold on to him and hold on to these fleeting moments. Um, And then that really turned into the book, Brain in a Jar, which then was published in the U.S. and overseas. Yes. What a beautiful, beautiful book. Almost a a memoir, would you say, right? Yes. Yes. It's a memoir, but a lot of people say that my memoirs, both my books are memoirs, that they read like fiction because there's a fantastical element to them. Yes, that's true. And my father was a fantastical character. That's for sure. And, and I'll um, just, if you don't mind, I'd like to tell your audience about why it's called brain in a jar. And and this will also say, you know, showcase how fantastic he was. Um, Well, my father was in medical school at university of Virginia when his father became sick with this memory stealing malady, um, So this was in the 60s. Right. And my father actually decided to specialize in neurology because of what was happening to his father. And the world didn't know much about it then, but it did have a name. It was Alzheimer's disease. And um, my grandfather, you know, became very sick, lost his mind, and all sorts of really bad things happened. Right. And my dad was watching it and horrified for other people that might get it, but also scared for the rest of the Burkhaws, like, is this going to happen to us? Right. So when my grandfather finally passed away, my father flew to Virginia and went to the coroner's office and had my grandfather's brain removed. And my father brought it back to Florida where we were then, then living, oh put it in a jar and put it on the center of his neurology desk. Oh my goodness. 
And as a little kid, I just thought, you know, he's got a spine, he's got a brain. These are all things that neurologists would right. have in their offices. <laughs> right. But I didn't know it was normal. my grand, but it was my grandfather's brain. And what I I learned in studying my father's life very closely was that he saw it as a crystal ball, that it was what he was going to try to fight for his patients to avoid. But of course, wow. there's no treatment then, no treatment now. And also what he feared would happen to him. Wow. And it did happen to him, and he died at the exact same age of his father. Which was what? Um, How old? 73. Uh-huh. Wow, young. And then my father, later on in life, when he knew it was coming for him, he just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, and he did everything he could to stop it. He took 73 supplements a day. He played tennis. He stopped drinking alcohol. Wow. He did Sudoku and crossword puzzles to the exception of even talking with his family. He was so obsessed. Wow. And he was also obsessed it was going to happen to me. Okay. And my, the whole point of Brain in a Jar at the end, the book ends with a letter to my son uh-huh. telling him that we aren't who our parents decide we are. We aren't, we aren't who our professors decide who we are. Right. We get to, de- to decide. And whether Alzheimer's is coming or not, I'm going to live my life differently from my father. I'm not going to live it in fear. Right. And there was a time my son and I were on this bus in Singapore and mm-hmm everybody was speaking a different language on the bus and we didn't know what was going on. And I found it really quite liberating. Like you don't have to know everything that's going on to be happy. So maybe if I'm on this journey where I won't have memories, maybe I can be happy in that state too. I don't have to understand everything. I can just be. And travel has taught me that. Interesting. And have you really internalized that so that there is, I imagine there's a bit of fear, but is there much less fear than your father? There's much less fear. I mean, my father was terrified and made me swear um, that I would kill him, that I would shoot him and made me swear my grandmother's Bible. And there was all this drama around forgetting. And in the meantime, he was doing Sudoku and crossword puzzles, even if I was sitting next to him. And I would think, what are you saving your mind for? It's not even for your family. It's just for the sake of saving your mind. So I, yeah, I'm right here. So I just feel committed to really being present, which is very hard for all of us in in the Western world. Um, And it takes a lot of commitment and determination, all the things I had as a swimmer, to be here now and to be living my best life, to not put up with bullshit or fakers and a lot of things that are being handed to all of us right now. Yeah. Fight the fights you want, but also live the life that you want. Yeah. If you can, plenty of people can't live the life they want. So true. You know, as a parent, I'm listening to you and what strikes me so poignantly about what you're saying is that I think it's so important for parents to live in the moment. You know, there mm-hmm. are so many difficult moments, right? In raising children, you're a mom. There's just so much going on. There's so much drudgery, if I may say, you know, same book over making the same lunches every day. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of that. But there is so much beauty in that drudgery also that when when they're not here, we will miss them. And you know, every time like one of my kids comes over to me and says, Oh, mommy, do this with me or do that with me. Or can you just sit with me? Can you just stop looking at your Mm -hmm. phone? Sometimes I'm inclined to say, but I have to get that email out. And sometimes I'll catch myself. And I will say, you know what? I, I can wait. The email can mm-hmm. wait. But like if they need me here and now, I need to make time for them. And that's, I think, what you're saying about 
the Alzheimer's for yeah. you became, I'm needed here and now. I don't need to work yes, in the future. That's right. And to try to see the drudgery of life actually as meditation. Yes. You know, when we go to Beautiful. church or temple or the mosque or whatever our, our place of worship is, if we have one, we repeat the same things over and over again. It's not drudgery. It's meditating on a sound and an emotion and a spiritual power that comforts us. Um, so doing the same things day in and day out, we can observe it as drudgery, or we can say, this is the thing that centers me, that tethers me wow. to the world, that contributes to an identity that I have forged. Um, anyway, I'm always looking a way to shift how I'm thinking so that better serves me. I am not a victim of my thoughts. I am the boss of them. Oh, that's great. No, I think that's really, I like that idea of looking at the repetitive task as sort right. of like a mantra that you repeat. It is a mantra. It is right. a mantra. We say om and om over and over again in yoga, but do we ever think, oh, I'm so bored of saying om. I don't <laughs> I once had, I lived in New York for a while and uh, had um, actually coached swimming at NYU uh, for a a year, which was fantastic. But I went to a workout once and the the workout guy said, uh, uh, you know, I used to hate cleaning the litter box and I realized I'm going to have to clean the litter box for as long as I have my cat. (laughs) So I might as well just decide here and now that I love cleaning the litter box. So he gets up in the morning. is like, yes, I get to clean the litter box. The litter box. <laughs> and I was like, that's such a great way to think. Right. I mean, who can bear going through life dreading on, on doing right. the dishwasher and doing the litter box? Right. Like how lucky we are that we have litter boxes. Right. Or, or that we have to make like lunches all the time. <laughs> right. I always try to think that when I'm in traffic, like, thank God I'm in traffic. It means I have a car. I'm right. so lucky. And also, what great thinking time. <laughs> right? Of course, yes. Right. <laughs> wow, I love that. So tell me, um, I know you love to travel. So you, I, mm-hmm. I read that you know Singapore was the place that really helped you reconcile your father's memory loss. Right. Explain that for me, please. Um, it was just... It, it's, it's really hard to put in words. I mean, I... I understood that memory loss was a, a time of not understanding and maybe we shouldn't be so terrified of that. Okay. Yes, it is terrifying, yes. but there's so many situations in which we find ourselves that we don't understand what's going on and we don't have to fight against that so hard. I think a level of not understanding about where you are in the world can also be liberating calming, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, Singapore and the cultures that live there, uh, same with, with the UAE, you know, it was just a, right. a hub of internationalism. You know, I, I spent three years at an Arab university where I'm the only American. 90% of the time, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and that's really interesting, you know, and trying to figure it out and try to learn enough Arabic so that I can understand what people are saying. Right. But in, in Arab culture, there's always what you think is happening and then the undercurrent of what is happening. It's, it's kind of like that in right. culture in the South of the U.S. too, which is, is interesting. So your brain gets to exercise in all these ways. It can also rest. It's a perfectly good time to be like, oh, I don't get that. And I'm going home to take a nap. Right. You know, we don't always have to fight against everything. 
And when I stopped fighting against my father's decline and really reached this level of acceptance, I was able to understand him more and really listen to the story of his life as it played in my head. But certainly, um, I'm just going to ask a question that I, I wonder if it's on other people's minds. Certainly, yeah. you you didn't have the same person pre-Alzheimer and post. Oh God, right? No, no, not at all. Mm-hmm. And I I wouldn't I wouldn't wish the disease on anyone. I'm not saying there's silver linings because I don't know that there are. Right. But no. there, we still have to live in the world with people with Alzheimer's. Right. Until there's a cure. And, 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 you know, I, people would come and see my father and say, hey, Bo, remember me? And I'm like, what are you saying? Don't say that. <laughs> he can't remember. Right. I'm asking you to have a level of acceptance. This is not the Bo Burkaw who, you know, the, neurolog- Nepal, right. the neurologist who flew to Nepal and took tons of whiskey to Boris Yanovich so he could hear about fighting tigers in Nepal, you know, he doesn't do that anymore. He is still that person, but he is also this person. And let's not force the concept of memory back upon him because he will fail in that task and it will hurt him and it will hurt you. Um, So I do, you know, a number of my friends now are having parents with memory loss and they ask me for advice. I don't have that much except not to demand that they remember. Let them be the person they are now, and you can talk about their memories with other people and hold that up. Yeah, that's good advice. That's great advice. Okay, so tell me, I know uh, Kenya plays a role mm. in both your books. Tell us right. about Kenya, what that means to you, what that place means. Kenya. Well, Kenya was the first place I, I became the post-swimmer me. Okay. So I joined the Peace Corps after college, and um, went to Kenya and then uh, spent three months in training. And then I was sent to a very rural village in the Western part of the country, a town called Maragoli, which actually at one point was the most densely populated place in the world. So people are very poor. They don't, um, their farms have been diminished over the years because they they give them to their eldest son and their eldest son gives it to his eldest son. And over 2000 years, people now literally have a postage stamp on which to farm. And I was sent to teach English, which I struggled with every single day. Like what on earth, what imperialistic colonialistic madness is this? Right. Um, But I thought, well, if I'm here, I'm going to learn something. I'm not going to teach anything. Um, I may teach reading and writing, and that's a, a great skill to have, wonderful. But the, it's most important that I learn about different ways of thinking and living on your land and being a human being. And I was ripe for the learning process because I'd never been anything but a privileged swimmer in Florida. Right. Wow. Right. Um, so I seized that opportunity, and I, you know, I hitchhiked all around that country. I spoke Swahili extremely well. I rode public buses. I just lived amongst the people as best I could and made lifelong friendships. I still support that school. I still um, run a scholarship program for the poorest and brightest. Um, My father built a library and they made him chief of the tribe. And I have his tribal headgear in a frame that's in my house. Wow. Um, So I do remember my father as a man with memory and a man without memory. Yes. 
but it ignited a great interest. It ignited my general curiosity about the world. Prior to that, my curiosity had been about the end of the swimming pool, right. the end of a right. lane, the end of a Limited. race. Right. Right. And um, it gave me new eyes. And I saw how landscape can affect and determine your identity. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean that you are a product of the place that you live and you're connected to, you're, again, you're tethered to it. Yes. And where really, where I really learned the lesson is when we moved to Abu Dhabi in 2015 and I saw how interesting it was, and this is a quip, but it also matches the reality of the situation, that the people of the desert, the Muslims, the Muslim better culture, they also don't drink. They are dry in the desert that is dry, which is they why are my literally book is, dry, right? Why it's dry land. And people who drink in the Middle East, they're the ones who have to go underground and drink behind closed doors and have a license to drink. Whereas in the US, if you're a non drinker, you have to go to an AA meeting underground right. into a basement. Right. But just being around an entire culture of people who don't go home at five o'clock for happy hour, go home at five o'clock and sit with their family, mm-hmm. talk to their family, work with their agriculture or whatever the pray. Wow. It's an option not to drink. Mm-hmm. And by then I was drinking two martinis and a bottle of wine every single night. And I decided, well, I think this is a good place to go cold Turkey which I did with the support of my husband and my son. And my son, who was nine, was already observing me very drunk, and it was a critical time. And I yeah. thought, it's time to do this. Right. And I did. I would, uh, this is not an approach I would recommend. <laughs> but well, Nancy, I don't know that you would recommend it as much as I'm not sure that everybody else could do it. <laughs> Um, I don't even know how I did it. Something (laughs) took over me. And I just, I I observed a country that felt like, this feels like an entire Betty Ford clinic. Nobody here drinks. This is the perfect place to quit drinking. This is really it. I I will really have support here. (laughs) I will have support here. So the the swimmer will literally go dry in the desert. And that's the, that's the whole topic of um, the second memoir, Dry Land, yeah. which is now a film script and circulating in Hollywood. So. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that because I think it's, it's an important topic, like I said, on so many levels because it's not, you know, it's just one more addiction. And I think that there are so many mm-hmm. people addicted because of internal pain to various things. Absolutely. Right? Yes. And, and it sounds like you were actually, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, like you were actually quite a high functioning alcoholic, if I can say that, right? <laughs> oh, yes. And, and there was some obnoxious sense of pride I had around that. I would be like, life is too easy if you don't have a hangover. Right. You know, like I have to have a hangover because otherwise it would just be drudgery as we were right. speaking of earlier, which is just one of those obnoxious lies we tell ourselves. Right, right. You know? And then did you get through whatever the pain was? Were you able to deal with that sober? Uh, yeah, I think there was a longstanding hole in my existence that was not it was filled by chlorine and then it was filled by alcohol mm-hmm. and some, I, I call that feeling sort of the sea of lonely and it, mm-hmm. it can sort of wash over me again, a landscape motif, but uh, I don't have that 
anymore. I now I just something makes me unhappy. I'm like, I have no way out. I just got to be like, okay, I'm unhappy right now. So I have to deal with it. Or sit I have with to it. deal with it. I have to sit with it. And if people treat me poorly, I have to call them out on it. Right. Like there's, right. there's literally no escape and how wonderful. Right. It's so much better. Yes. Well, I think you learn so much about yourself, about the people around you. You learn who your friends are, who you yes. can trust. Right. 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 That's a yeah. beautiful thing. So now you're currently working as a communication and marketing mm-hmm. advisor, right? Um, right. From- University. So tell me a little bit about Right. So that's with Ajman University in the UAE. I was there for two years. I've been working remotely for one year. Mm -hmm. Um, And the only reason we physically left that place um, is that my son really wanted to go to high school in the U.S. You know, I love the UAE. I love it so much. It's my second home because of what it helped me get through and because of my great respect for the entire place. But it's not fair to put that on my son. He didn't really want to go to school, an international school. He wanted to just be like a regular American kid. Fair enough. So we're here. And fortunately, I have such a strong and amazing uh, friendship and partnership with the chancellor of Ajman University. So I continue to work with him on... um, you know, just how we talk about the institution. My, my first day on the job, I walked in and I said, what are we trying to accomplish here? And he said, I want Ajman University to be on the global map of higher education. And those were my marching orders. And I was like, okay, to myself, I have no idea how to do that, but that's what we'll do. And the best kept secret in the Middle East is now ranked among the top 750 universities in That's the wonderful. world. That's wonderful. With the third most diverse student body in the world wow. and institution. So I was a part of that journey with the institution and I'm proud of that and proud of them. And That's none of us speak really the same native tongue. A lot of us are you know, from the subcontinent, from Africa, from the Middle East, wow. there's a lot of Arabic. But a group of people who don't on paper have a lot in common came together to solve problems. Right. For a common Yes. That is amazing. How has coronavirus affected um, the college? Uh, same as every other college. Yeah. Virtual. Um, everything's virtual? Uh, mostly virtual. They're doing a hybrid model. Um, the th- one thing that's different is that they are much more aggressive than the U.S. about testing. Right. And, um, you know, you can get your results in 15 minutes. So everybody is tested all the time. You walk in and there's sensors that, um, you know, tell whether you have a temperature. So it seems to be much more vigilant. That's great. Yeah. Well, hopefully we will get there. Um, It has just been a real pleasure talking to you. Nancy. And you. No, I mean, you're, you're just really a very interesting person. I, I, I think there's probably, we just t- tipped the surface here today. <laughs> um, so I encourage everybody to read your books, Brain in a Jar, Dryland. They're both available on Amazon. Um, I think you're just terrific. Your, your articles, your essays are just everything you write. That's how I, I found you. I just, you're, it's just poignant and beautifully written. And oh, I'm, I love that. Thank you so much. <laughs> thanks for having me. And thanks for having a platform where we can have um, unique conversations. Yes. It's wonderful. Thank you. All right. So have a great day. Bye for now.